0: Thank you Alex. I can't help noticing that the men have a weekend away and the ladies get a day. I think that shows where the real power lies that um, you can't do without the women for 24 hours or a weekend. Everything would fall apart. I've just returned a few days ago from the United States of America visiting family there. Our oldest son lives there with his family and I met some people who are hoping that this year sees the return of the Trump and there are other people I met who are hoping equally that he does not make a return but each side is full of dread of hope and it got me thinking about this thing that we're to look at tonight so the Italians have a proverb that hope is the last thing ever lost Dostoevsky said, to live without hope is to cease to live. There is something about the human heart, the human soul that needs to fasten on to something to hope for, to look forward to. And those who lose hope find there is no meaning. And you know the terrible statistics, especially amongst young men in this part of the world who find themselves without hope and without meaning in life, and so they end it. We have some of the worst statistics for male suicide. On the other hand, Theodore Roosevelt said, when you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot and hold on. That's what a president said. Another president said, FDR, we've always held to the hope, the belief, the conviction. There is a better life, a better world beyond the horizon. And so throughout time, throughout geography, there is this perennial longing for the future, for something positive. It's it's at the heart of the human condition as we face difficulties in our lives to look for something beyond in which we can place hope. And that's the theme tonight. But unlike those rather wishy-washy milksop quotes, the hope that we're speaking of tonight has been captured very well in the songs, the well-chosen, beautifully crafted songs that we've been singing about the Christian hope. And we're going to look at two songs from the Hebrew scriptures, Psalm 130 and Psalm 131. And if you have access to these wonderful Pew Bibles, I'm very tempted to take this home with me tonight. Uh, It's nice large print and if you have access to that, it's page 518, 518 in the Pew Bibles. It's Psalm 130 and 131 if you're looking on elsewhere in some other text. And I encourage you to get sight of the text because I want to go through it and pick out the references and walk our way through this wonderful piece of poetry. I can't help thinking there's something a bit odd about speaking, analyzing poetry. It's a song. Uh, it was 2016, I think, that the Nobel prize was given to Bob Dylan for literature, not for singing, but for literature. And the The assignment that year said that he he got it because he created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. So they didn't give it to him for the quality of his voice, nor for his diction, but they gave it to him for the quality of his poetry. And I can't help thinking that if they had the opportunity back in the days of these Hebrew psalmists, that there would have been an award that should have been given to the man or the woman, whoever wrote Psalm 130 and 131. The setting is, as you've heard, this series of 15 Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And the setting for that, as you've heard several times, and I've made it my business to listen to the previous talks, so if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that if you've missed any of them, they're rich material. So. Uh, Get into those and listen to them. But this picture is an illustration of the road that takes you. Wherever you're going to Jerusalem, you need to go up. And that is because if you've ever been to the land of Israel, and if you've not, I encourage you. I'm not under any um, commission from the Israeli tourist board, but if you haven't been, you should go if you get a chance. But what you'll find is that to go to Jerusalem from wherever you come, you must go up. And that is because Jerusalem is in the hills sitting above the Jordan Valley and the Jordan Valley leads down to the Dead Sea which is the lowest point on the planet and so whether you're coming from that direction from Jericho or whether you're coming from the coast the Mediterranean coast everyone has to ascend to Jerusalem and in the days of the psalmist it was situated on some prominent hills and at the top of the city stood the magnificent, eye-catching, heart-stopping sight of the temple that Solomon had constructed. The temple where God graciously came and took up residence. And that was why the people were coming. From all over the world, they came. Three times a year, they were required to come and make this journey ascending to not just the capital city of the Jewish people, but to the temple and to the God of that temple, always going up, up to worship, literally going up and metaphorically going up, that sense of there is someone greater than us. There is a power, more than a power, there is a person who is behind the universe. He is the creator, sustainer, and sovereign of the universe. That's the the message of the Hebrew Bible. It starts in Genesis with him making the cosmos from nothing, simply speaking it into being. And having done that, he upholds it. It continues because he wants it to continue. We're here because he wants us to enjoy this wonderful realm that he has created. And he is not only the creator and sustainer, but he is the moral governor, the ruler, the one who is sovereign over it. And so the Jewish people are going up, and as they go, they recite, they sing these wonderful songs. So let's come to the text. Psalm 130. On page 518, this is the Word of God. A song of ascents. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Pause. I've deliberately emphasized to you that this is about a group of people and the poet ascending, climbing, physically and metaphorically. But he starts in a very strange place. In the depths. As low as he could be, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Pause. If you kept a record as the all-knowing, all-good, all-just one of everything that I had said and done and thought and omitted to do, if you kept somehow a record of that, if you had the ability to do that, God, if you knew me intimately and had that record, who could stand? Verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Pause. That's going to be the main topic we'll look at tonight. But tucked in behind that is, if you like, the the personal individual response. He's ended by calling upon his his compatriots upon the nation of Israel to trust in God, to hope in God. But there needs to be not only the national, corporate, community response, it has to start with the individual response. And this is what he turns to in Psalm 131 A Song of Ascents of David. O Lord. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Pause. The weaned child is the one who has been fed by the mother, no longer now receiving food and milk from the mother, but is content and comfortable, not fussing to get more milk from mother, but now content to be held and to snuggle and to be close in mother's arms. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and for evermore. This is the Word of God. The psalmist starts by confessing that he is in the depths, verse 1 of Psalm 130. As he makes this journey upwards, he's conscious of his own deep personal need. Now, we don't know what the nature of this problem is. We're not told its character. Is it something physical? Is it something psychological? Is it a sense of guilt? Whatever it is, it's something that has knocked him to his core. And as he is physically and metaphorically climbing and rising and looking forward to going up to the great city, the great temple, to the great God who is above all, he starts by recognizing that in his own life, in truth. He's in the depths. I think this ambiguity is helpful because we're all in deep need of various kinds. So, what is your depth, your crisis, your problem, perhaps at the present, perhaps recent, and if not yet, then soon it will come. Recently I was knocked to my knees, and I don't mean prayer, but literally knocked to my knees by a piece of news. I just felt unable to stand and I I, I just fell to my knees literally by the news that I received. It could be something in terms of health. My wife who's with me tonight is closely liaising with a good friend who's got a, a close family member, age 40, diagnosed with incurable cancer, given a prognosis of a few months. Came from nowhere, a healthy man in his 40s, and suddenly he's told to make his preparations for his funeral. It could be a relationship. That has gone wrong, sour, abusive, corroding, damaging. It could be that depth of disappointment in a family member. Something has overcome you that you just didn't see coming, and it floors you. And that's because the world we live in, It's not some make-believe, happy place. It's not Disney all over the world. When you go to Disney, they say it's the happiest place in the world, but it's the falsest place in the world. It's not real. The real world has problems, crises, difficulties, pain, suffering, and that is because on the Bible's analysis, it is a world that is out of step with the God who created it, who sustains it, who is the moral governor. There is a rupture, there is a fracture in the order of the universe that goes right back to the origins of mankind. And so, whatever this depth is, it's gripped him, it's choking him, then he starts the journey in five steps. First of all, verse two, he prays. He prays because he believes in God. He believes that there is a God. He believes and asks to be heard. Verse two, you'll notice that. He doesn't ask that God would do what he wants. He asks that God would listen. He wants to be heard. And what this does is reveals his view of the world. He recognizes that whatever the depth is, whatever the problem is, whatever the crisis that has engulfed him, there is still God. There is still a God who has an ear, an interest, And so he turns from himself towards that one and calls upon him, asking to be heard. He's confident that there is a God. The crisis hasn't left him as an atheist. It hasn't shaken his faith in the existence of God, as so often bad news does, where we turn around and blame God. He's not doing that. And when he calls on God, revealing his worldview, because you'll not pray unless you believe there is a God, and you'll not pray to God unless you believe that He's interested, and you'll not pray to God unless you believe He's there and He's interested and He can do something about it. That's why we pray so little, because we don't need God, we're self-reliant, we are big and mature and adult, and why would we ever resort to some distant deity to sort out the problems of our life and our world unless we come to see that we are creatures of that God, dependent, utterly dependent, and helpless without Him, and that our own wit and schemes and efforts are of no effect to really improve our own state or the world around us. So he's confident there is a God that he hears. And verse two, he pleads for mercy, for he knows that he's got no merit. If you think you've got merit, then you'll come before God and say, I'd like five minutes of your time, great deity, to tell you how great I am and, and how you really owe me And I'm sad to say that some of us think that that's the way we speak to God. In light of this, 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 and this that I've done, I now have got currency with you. I've now got leverage with you, God. And because of these things, I'm now calling upon you in light of my merit to do this. We, we think God is some sort of concierge or someone to fix things. He pleads for mercy. He knows he has no merit, so step one is he turns from this depth to prayer. Step two, verses three and four, he recognizes and acknowledges the universal problem of sin. Verse three, if there is a God who is all-knowing, and if he doesn't know everything, then he's not God. He's not only all-knowing, but he is morally perfect, he's holy there's the problem how can the omniscient holy perfect morally absolutely complete one ever find a path to forgive sin and that has been from the first rebellion against god the heart of the problem that humanity faces and whether you look in literature ancient or modern, it's always wrestling with this human condition where we are not as we should be, we're not as we want to be. The world is not the way we would like it to be, and the, the Hebrew Bible, the Christian reading of the Old and New Testament is that this world is not just broken, it is fallen. It is under God's judgment. He who made it demands perfection demands uprightness, demands things done in the proper way. And because of this bankruptcy and moral failure of which we're all guilty and unable to fix, there is the problem. And unless God finds a way to forgive, there's no hope for any of us. Verse 3, no one can stand. All the intellects and moral efforts and all of the schemes and all of the religions and all of the philosophies cannot solve this problem. Human efforts to solve the problem of sin are doomed to fail. They necessarily must fail, he says. Unless God finds a path, there's no hope. Step three. Not only does he pray, not only does he recognize and acknowledge the problem of sin, not just out there in the system, but in his own life and in his own heart. It was Sosinitzen who says that the problem with this sin, this rebellion, is not that it runs through borders and countries, but it runs through every human heart. It's a universal problem. And so he shares his heart, verses 5 and 6 as he climbs step by step up towards Jerusalem. Verse 5, he's waiting for God. If God is the one who must find a way to forgive, well, we've got to wait for God to find it and to to do it, to show it. Verse 5, not only am I waiting, he says, but I'm hoping in God's Word. Already this is hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus was born, but already he's anticipating, he's already alive to the fact that God has disclosed that there will come this great deliverer, this great savior, this great Messiah, who will put right all that is wrong. And so we're not just waiting for God to do something indeterminate and unclear, we're waiting for God to deliver on his promises. Verse five, his word to be fulfilled. Verse 6, he says, as I go, I'm waiting. I'm hoping in God's word, and I'm going with high expectation. I'm like the watchman on the last watch through the night just before the dawn comes, and I'm longing. I'm longing for that first glimpse of light to tell me that the night is ending and the day is beginning. Without electricity, without modern technology, can you imagine what it was like to be the watchman whose job it was to be on duty, that final watch of the night, when it was darkest, just before the dawn? And the sense of longing, anticipation, it's got to be coming, it's coming, and it's coming soon. It's closer now than ever it was. I'm waiting, he says, longing for the dawn. So if step one is prayer, step two is recognizing the universal problem of sin, step three is sharing his heart, step four is now turning to that God and praising him. Verse 7 and 8, he says, this God that I'm waiting for, trusting in, anticipating, he's marked by two virtues that he highlights. Verse 7, love that is steadfast, not some weak, ephemeral, passing, whimsical, capricious, unreliable love, but love that is steadfast, rooted in the character of God, the nature of God. God is love. It's not that God loves because He just occasionally decides to be nice and to love us. God loves because it is His nature. He is committed to love, but it's not just love, verse 8 and 7, forgiveness. So, the God who is holy, the God who is all-knowing, is also the God, he tells us, who is loving and who finds a way to bring about forgiveness from all sin. And he uses a word that we're very familiar with, redemption. In the New Testament, it's often used as a A shorthand way of talking about forgiveness of sins. It's not used that way very often in the Old Testament. This is one of the couple of references in the Old Testament to the redemption of sins because redemption in the ancient world, both in the Old and the New Testament, meant setting free from captivity. And so the picture that Paul paints for us in the New Testament is someone who is captured in a battle or someone who is indebted and put into prison and is set free from captivity by the payment of a price. But the focus is not the price. The focus is on someone who is trapped, unable to escape until someone else comes along and acts at a cost to set them free. In Old Testament terms, redemption is rooted into the Exodus event when God delivers his people who are slaves in Egypt. Unable to escape, they asked for permission, and the king laughed. (laughs) You think I'm gonna let my my best manpower leave whenever the pyramids are still not finished? Come on, there's no strikes here. There is only work to be done. And if you don't like it, we'll make it tougher for you. And so, unable to escape through their wit, through their energy, through their numerical numbers, God acts and sets them free at a great cost to himself. He invests energy, he invests resources to set them free from their captivity. So in the Old Testament, the idea of redemption is again and again rooted back to the Exodus event and other similar events where they're familiar with physical setting free when you're unable to escape. But here is one of the few references where that that physical setting free is applied as a metaphor, as a picture to that imprisonment by a force that is greater and stronger than you are, that has you enthralled to its rebellion against God. And even when you don't want to, you find that you can't live the way you should. Even when you have your best resolutions and and try your hardest, you can't live the way you know you should because there is a power that has you in captivity. And so he says, not only is God marked by steadfast love, but he is marked by this forgiveness, this redemption. And then his fifth step, he calls the people to hope in the Lord. Why? Well, it's because of God's character, because of God's promises, and because of God's action what he's already done and and what he will do, this great deliverer who's going to come, the one that he's anticipating, there's the basis for hope. Not a, a mere optimism, not a cross your finger and just hope that it's going to work out, but an expectation that if God is God, and if God has promised to deliver his people, by the arrival of God the Son in flesh, who would bear in his body the penalty of sin so that God can forgive and to do it justly and properly and still be good and still be holy. Romans 3 explains this very clearly. The problem God had, if you like, was that he wants to forgive, but he has to do it in a way that is just. So, how do you square that circle? You can't just forgive because that would be to give up on your moral absolutes. And you can't just punish because then you've not forgiven. So, how do you square that circle? God squares the circle with divine geometry with a cross. That in the person of the Lord Jesus dying on that cross, God, as Paul says in Romans 3, is both just and the justifier, the one who puts right those who have faith in Christ. So he finds a way to forgive and to do it so that the watching universe can say, God really is holy. God really does keep to the standards because he didn't minimize the punishment. He gathered up the full undiluted wrath against all evil, and he dropped it on his son, God really is just, but he's also a God of love. The place where justice and mercy, compassion and righteousness meet, is in that naked man called Jesus of Nazareth hanging on a cross. And because this is an anticipation as the psalmist is writing he's saying to his contemporaries, we can trust God's character. We can trust the promises he's made. He's already delivered, and one day he will deliver. So if you want to find a place to put your hope and invest your hope, there it is. And if that's right, then all the more so for those of us who are informed by the New Testament, instructed by the Holy Spirit of God to see that the man dying on that center cross is the very Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So that this and um, salvation that is anticipated by the pilgrim was delivered. So let me move quickly to Psalm 131 because his focus at the end of Psalm 130 is on his contemporaries, his nation, his colleagues saying, come on, come on, come and hope in God. But it must be an individual step. And in Psalm 131, the poet takes two steps, directing the community towards God as the source of hope. First of all, he rejects pride. You'll see that in verse 1. Pride is our default state. The root sin Is pride, this idea that we don't need God, we can depose God, as Don Carson calls it, we can de-God God. God. We can be our own gods, we can set our own values, our standards, and we can make moral decisions without any external old-fashioned notion of a God. And so pride at the heart of sin, he says in verse 1, my eyes are not raised too high. I, I, I don't look down on other people. I don't look down on those around me and on life around me, imagining that I have got it all sussed and I'm better than other people. And verse 1b. I'm not busying myself with things that lie beyond my reach. It's my natural inclination, he's admitting, but he's rejecting it. But it's not just enough to try and reject pride. He then pursues humility. Verse 2, he has this word picture of the, the soul that he has calmed, his own soul, quietened it in total confidence in God, like the, the child who has been weaned, not fretting, not searching for mother's breast for the next feed, but now relax content, trusting in mum. And he's describing that state of humility where we come and recognize who God is and who we are. Humility is a, a virtue that was despised in the ancient world and is still despised. Some might admire it from a safe distance, but it's rarely practiced. John Stott said that It was the neglected but indispensable ingredient of Christian spirituality. Tim Keller described it as not thinking more of myself but or less of myself. Humility is thinking of myself less. So as a creature made by God in his image, I depend on his power but I'm also a sinner, a rebel, a moral bankrupt, a failure. And I need God to fix that because I can't fix it myself. And so this wonderful God that is revealed through the psalm and throughout the whole of the Bible is the one who moves, who acts, not simply to bring us into proper relationship with himself, but to forgive us to justify us, to make us holy, to make us right with himself, and then to commission us, to send us off into service in his kingdom. Jerry Bridges said, I would say it's impossible to truly walk in humility without to some degree appropriating the truth of the gospel every day. And it all comes back to the cross which is where i took you this morning if you remember if you were here as i read old and new testament it's getting ready for this central event in the history of the world when the god man dies and atoning death is buried and resurrected ascends to heaven waiting to return And what he achieved there is not just a message that we're meant to share with those who haven't heard, though we should, but it's the message and the core of what God is doing to change all of us as we follow him. There isn't an advanced course beyond the cross. It always comes back to the cross, which is why This is the final slide that I wanted to leave with you. The ground for hope is not in some rainbow, some passing illusion, some political dream, some economic hope, some great political leader, some clever scheme, some new philosophy, something that is ephemeral and passing, the basis, the root, the ground, the solid ground for hope is on the cross of Christ. Just think, if it's really so that he is the Son of God in the human body, what's he doing on that cross? Is it really true that on that cross he suffers at the hands of Almighty God, the the penalty that was stacked up for the sin and rebellion of the world throughout all time, is that really true? And that when he died, God was satisfied with what he had done so that he can offer free forgiveness to anyone, anywhere, for anything. Is that true? Is it true that the one who died and rose again, ascended to heaven, is coming back? Is that true? Is it true that in the meantime, he has sent his Holy Spirit to move throughout the nations of the world to knock on their conscience and to say, he really is the Son of God. Now it's time that you surrender to him, trust him, follow him, make him the master, the Lord of your life. Is that really true? And as you surrender, he makes you a new creature, births you, and dwells you by his Spirit so that the rest of your life, however long or short, is a journey where he is shaping and fashioning you and making you more like the Lord Jesus. Is that really true? Because if that's true, there's hope for everyone. There's hope for anyone no matter what they've done. And if it's not true, then there's no hope at all. Will you buy with me in a moment of prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you that this is true, that you are the very Son of God, that you are the one who loved us and gave yourself for us, And that what you accomplished outside Jerusalem in the shadow of that great temple was the once-for-all act that removes the penalty that we deserve as we come and trust you and allow you to come and take control of our lives and change us. We thank you this is true and it changes everything. So, Father, we thank you for the truth of your gospel, that you are the God who promises and acts, the God who hears and brings us out of the depths of guilt and despair and anguish into your family, into relationship, and one day you will bring us into that place where we see the Lord Jesus as he is, and we'll be like him. We ask that each of us would follow him with an enthusiasm that he deserves. For the glory of his name. Amen.